Hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, and I'm so glad that you're here today. Here on this channel, we make videos about biblical and theological topics with guests from across the Christian tradition. And if you're enjoying them and you haven't yet already, I'd really encourage you to hit subscribe to become a part of this community. And if you don't want to miss any future videos, be sure to hit the notification bell as well to be in the loop. Today, I'll be interviewing Orthodox apologist Jay Dyer. Now, Jay has to be one of the most requested guests I've had on my channel, but simultaneously one of the more, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but anytime someone says, you know, hey, you've got to interview Jay, there's a bunch of people that say yes, 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 and then there's some people that say no, and I understand that from some past videos perhaps that people have seen, they're wary of um, having him on the channel. I get that, I hear that, and I appreciate all of your input. There's a couple of things I want to say. First, I think you're going to find this video remarkably uncontroversial. It's it's not my style to make my videos needlessly controversial, and I thought this conversation was pretty cordial, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. There's a lot of good substance here. The second thing I want to say is that as I was reflecting on, you know, do I want to do this interview? He had reached out, saw one of my videos, we got in touch, and we started talking about doing a video. And as I was trying to sift through everyone's valuable feedback they had given me that I really appreciated, I was struck by this idea. You know, the motto of this channel is love across the lines. We engage with people who disagree with us and are different than us here. And in order to do that, you can't just engage with people who look like you, think like you, believe like you. Oftentimes we have people from across the Christian tradition that might disagree, but maybe they're all of similar dispositions. Well, that's good, but it's only the first step to really loving across the lines. Sometimes it requires, you know, really engaging with people who you just might feel your personalities aren't very similar. Well, I thought this conversation was an excellent opportunity to kind of expand the channel and really put that motto, you know, out into the open. Hey, we're out to love across the lines. And just because some people find a guest controversial, I don't think is a good reason not to have them on if we can do it in a way that is edifying and informative. And I think this conversation was all those things. So with all that being said, if you clicked on this title and you're here for controversy, I don't think you're going to get it. If you saw this title and you were worried, I don't think you need to be. I hope you enjoy this video, and I think you will. So as we get ready to go to the interview, I just want to say I hear you all, I appreciate your feedback, and I really hope you enjoy it. I also wanted to say a big thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly to support this channel. Thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. And if you want to support this channel, you can do so by using the link in the description or by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. That would mean a ton to me. I also want to thank our sponsor for today, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. They do this by creating these beautiful Bibles complete with full-page photos that will cause you to read the Bible differently. It'll force you to slow down, read more contemplatively, think about the passage in different ways, really just spice up your Bible reading. And I think you'll really enjoy it. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And so if you want to check them out, you can go to kindredapostle.com and use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. With all that being said, I hope you enjoyed the interview, and here it is. (music) 
Jay Dyer is an author, comedian, and TV presenter known for his deep analysis of Hollywood geopolitics and culture. His graduate work focused on psychological warfare and film. He is the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, and the co-creator and co-host of the television show Hollywood Decoded. He has been featured on numerous popular shows and podcasts and in debates with some of the world's top debaters and a fill-in host for some of the largest U.S. radio shows. Jay, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you, man. Um, Pleasure to be on your show. I've seen some of the previous episodes. I really enjoyed the the interview with Father Hears. He's a a good friend of mine, so I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, it's a this has been an episode that has been highly requested uh, by many people. And so, yeah, when I saw that you saw that video and uh, reached out and it worked out, I was uh, excited to talk about this topic today. And so people who have clicked on this video uh, in the future sometime, they know that we're going to be talking about this idea of theosis. But if they're not familiar with you and they just heard that bio, they might not be expecting a conversation on this topic of like this intricate theological idea. So I'd be curious just you know, we went through that bio, but how did you end up in this position as, and correct me if you don't like this title, but I'd say like an orthodox apologist. Is that fair? It kind of happened uh, accidentally. I, I was doing a lot of the Hollywood analysis and symbolism stuff about four or five years ago. And then um, some people said, why don't you do a debate? Because we know you have an interest in philosophy and that you'd studied that. And I've always had, you know, a, a a lot of time that I put into church fathers and the Bible and all that, but uh, it wasn't really what I was focusing on in terms of the public arena. And then I did a couple of debates with atheists, Adam Kokesh, and then JF, and then um, uh, maybe a couple more back in the day. And then the debates kind of took off and people found those to be very helpful. Uh, a lot of atheists said that they had converted to um, no longer being atheists or theism in some form um, as a result of those debates. So that kind of kicked off just uh, more theologically and philosophically oriented content over the last four or five years. And uh, so I didn't plan to be an Orthodox apologist, but uh, it just kind of was a situation that snowballed and where people said, well, will you debate this guy? Will you debate this guy? And so I don't want to say no. So uh, I just kind of kept doing it. But um, theology has was for many years my main focus. That was what I was studying early on. And um, for various personal reasons in my past, I ended up just going to a secular university and not continuing the, the theology degree. So I just did, you know, just straight, straight up boring old philosophy. So um, but I never lost the interest in, in theology. And uh, so it's just kind of something that happened on its own. Awesome. That, that's really interesting. And today it seems that those two things live more or less equally on your channel as far as uh, things working through Hollywood and orthodoxy. Maybe, you know, you could an- analyze it. You know, it might not be 50-50, but somewhere around there. Is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just didn't want to stop doing what uh, the other stuff that I was into because it really is just my interests, right? So was, I'm interested in movies. I'm interested in the arts. I'm interested in philosophy, geopolitics. Um, and, and the Bible. So I just talk about really whatever I'm into. So, um, yes, the content is, I would say pretty equally balanced between all that stuff. Nice. And that's the the beauty of creating on YouTube where you can kind of just make the stuff that you're interested in, Exactly. uh, (laughs) you know, people, people find it. And so I'd be curious, you hinted at it a bit, but you know, I, I usually like to ask questions along these lines, especially uh, with my Orthodox and Catholic guests, as many of them didn't grow up in those traditions. Uh, did you, you didn't grow up Orthodox, did you? No, I was raised Baptist and uh, 
nominally Baptist. I mean, not super committed, but you know, we went every few months to church and uh, the holidays and all that. And then about my senior year of high school, I got really interested in reading the Bible and going to Bible studies. And so I went to Bible college and then I did a, uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. That's time it was called Bonson Seminary after Dr. Greg Bonson, um, who was a big influence on my, my theology and philosophy when I was a Protestant, got me into the transcendental argument and that, that realm of apologetics. And then kind of separate from all that, I got into reading the church fathers that you see here and um, studying the history of the formation of the canon. And that eventually took me into, in my 20s, to the Roman Catholic world because I didn't, at that time, uh, back in about 2003, there wasn't a whole lot of Orthodox stuff online. And so the whole debate between Protestant and Catholic was really all there was. And so um, I went into Catholicism for most of my 20s, many, many years, um, read a lot of Thomas Aquinas and continued uh, studying church history and the church fathers and then getting into Vatican II and the whole issue with that controversy in the Roman Catholic world. And then that got me into the Eastern fathers. So I've had uh, a couple conversions in my life uh, out of Protestantism and into Catholicism. And then ultimately then finally into Orthodoxy. Um, I would say I was convinced of Orthodoxy maybe seven years ago. Um, I didn't live near an Orthodox church for many years. So it took a while to eventually come into the church, but, uh, it was, it was, yeah, a long sort of series of just studying church history, the church fathers, biblical theology for about 20 years to get to the point where I'm at. Wow. I, that, that's fantastic. And thank you for sharing that. I think that a lot of people who uh, listen to my videos or watch the videos uh, are going to be able to relate to that wrestling. I know uh, the, the largest section of my audience is Catholic, followed by Orthodox, then Protestant. Um, and I'd love to poll them on this, but I, I think many of them are converts from Protestantism. And so I think they'll be able to definitely uh, kind of relate to certain touch points in your story there. As I mentioned at the beginning, today I want to talk about this idea of theosis. To me, as an outsider, this seems to be something distinctive in the East. Not that we don't have parallels uh, in, in Western thought, but it is certainly something that comes up. And growing up as an evangelical, I didn't, and you can probably relate to this, uh, often I, I didn't hear the term theosis in church. This wasn't in my religious vocabulary. And I imagine there's lots of people out there that uh, can, can resonate with that idea. So just to start out, for those that maybe aren't very deep into this, what does this term even mean, theosis? Well, I remember hearing that term when I was a Protestant too, and it kind of struck me as strange because I thought, oh, the Orthodox in the East and some of the church fathers talk about this idea of deification or theosis, and that sounds pagan, and surely that can't be right. But I remember even back when I was a Calvinist, I would, I would, uh, you know, come across texts in the scriptures that seemed to suggest that, but I didn't really know how to fit that into the, um, at that time when I, when I had a sort of a Calvin, Calvinist systematic theology paradigm. I didn't know where to place that. So I just kind of put it on the back burner. But uh, yeah, eventually you you do come into contact with different theologies, different paradigms, different systems. And, and at some point you encounter the early church fathers and the way they conceive of Christology and how Christology is directly connected to one's Trinitarian theology. And that ultimately will be the paradigm for how we get to that conclusion that theosis is the biblical doctrine. But Suffice to say that simply it's not the same thing as what a pagan might conceive of as apotheosis, where man literally becomes the divine nature or becomes um, God himself, but rather it's a notion of participation. So for Orthodox theology, we will typically look to Dionysius, 
or uh, the Cappadocian Church Fathers or Maximus to explain the metaphysics of how the participation is possible. But really, we're just going back to the Bible when it talks about um, that Jesus came to bring us eternal life, immortality, the divine life. And John 17 even says the glory that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. Uh, you know, Peter, 2 Peter 1 talks about being becoming a partaker of the divine nature. And so for us, all of those are just examples of texts that tell us the, the full picture of what it is to participate in divine life and what it is that Christ is restoring in terms of what Adam lost. So Adam, in our, in our belief, uh, was made in the image of God, and that includes the likeness of God, image and likeness, likeness being the divine life, the Holy Spirit, etc. So when he fell, he retains the image of God, but he lost that life of the Holy Spirit, that participatory life in theosis or divinity, um, and was reduced to a natural and mortal state. And so, uh, as uh, one of our great saints famously says, the life of theosis and orthodoxy is the regaining of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the, in other words, just a way to phrase the end goal is to um, attain not just the status that Adam had that was mutable, but to be raised to even a better status. For real, so really for us, and I know that one way to maybe bridge this with uh, the evangelical Protestant world is. I know that most evangelicals and Protestants do believe in a doctrine of transfiguration, right? That, that there is in, in their, the way that they have this kind of staked out, there's justification and there's sanctification and there's glorification. Well, for us, those are really words describing the same kind of out of side of time event. Uh, and so it's, it's all kind of describing the same process, you could say. So for us, uh, glorification or transfiguration begins now in this life. And I think that's maybe the big, definitely the big difference between us and the Roman Catholics, because they push that to the end times or to, excuse me, to the afterlife with the beatific vision doctrine that they hold to. But for us, the, 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 the process, the direct perception of God, theosis, et cetera, is all in the here and the now. So that's what we mean by theosis is participation in the divine life, direct perception of God himself uh, through the noose, which is a faculty that we believe God gave us to know him directly. And uh, again, all summed up by these phrases that you might hear Orthodox people say, like seeing the uncreated light or um, being deified or uh, regaining the life of the Holy Spirit. All of those are phrases that encapsulate what we mean by theosis. Thanks for that. I think that's a helpful starting place for people. And I could definitely relate to something you said very early on there, that concept of at times we come across passages and we know this is biblical, but we don't really know what to do with it. So we kind of just right. put it on the back burner. I think a lot of growing theologically is uh, being able to incorporate the entirety of the scriptural witness Absolutely. on these things. And so you mentioned uh, the Cappadocians here, and you know it was uh, an area that I wanted to bring up. And you, you hit it a little bit of what you're not saying. But I remember the first time, might have been really my first time reading uh, Church Father, which in my sophomore year of a theology major is kind of late for that. But, you know, just the tradition I grew up in, that's kind of, I think the first time I came across it, but I was writing a paper on union with Christ, which might be a, a good kind of parallel uh, in the, you know, reformed or evangelical world and was doing some like survey at the beginning, I was reading on the incarnation and came across that famous line of, you know, uh, Jesus or that God, uh, became man that man might become God and being being a bit scandalized by that almost like not not really having a conceptual space for what do you mean by man becomes 
God. That that just kind of set off these immediate red flags. Um, and as I've dug into it more, and as you started to describe, th- there is nuance there. But maybe for anyone that might be uh, in a boat similar to that, that this is the first time they're coming across of it. it you you mentioned earlier the difference between the- theosis and apotheosis, I believe. Um, but yeah, so what what is he not saying there? What what is Athanasius getting at, but not uh, going o- over the edge with? So when I when I mentioned apotheosis, I was just kind of trying to come up with uh, modern uh, phrases that are, or English transliterations that might capture the idea of why we're not saying a pagan idea, right? Um, so if we became the essence of God or the nature of God, if we took on or participated in God's very nature itself, then we would, of course, become new persons in in God, in the Trinity. So you would have not just a Trinity, but you would have as many people as, uh, right, new hypostases in the Trinity, so to speak. But so we're not saying that, and, that's, and, and Athanasius, of course, is not saying that. And w- maybe this is the point to bring in that really important paradigmatic level distinction that orthodoxy stresses, which is the essence energy distinction. And this is the idea that um, it's, we would say it's in the Old Testament. It's in the writings of Paul very clearly. Uh, It's in many of the church fathers and specifically the Cappadocians who are the first to really go in depth into this distinction, although it is present in Athanasius's anti-Trinitarian treatises, as well as St. Cyril of Alexandria's uh, Christological treatises. Uh, And this is to say that, for example, when Moses went up on the mountain, and he saw God face to face, there's an apparent contradiction. I don't believe in contradictions in the Bible, but there's an apparent contradiction between the statement or the phrase that no man can see God and live. And yet we have many instances of the Old Testament saints seeing God. Uh, Another helpful uh, parallel to this is the Old Testament theophanies, which Orthodox believe is, of course, the second person of God had the Logos in his pre-incarnate theophanic manifestation state. But now if we know God is simple and God is not compounded, he's not acted upon all these different meanings for the word God being simple. How is it possible for the second person of God had to manifest prior to his incarnation in the Old Testament? Now, we don't know all the mechanics of that, but one helpful tool that we think is a metaphysically true thing from the Bible is the essence energy distinction. There's a distinction between what a thing is and what a thing does. And so we believe quite clearly that it's a real distinction. It's not just conceptual. It's not just a linguistic distinction. It is conceptual and linguistic, but it's also a real distinction. And there's many reasons why we think that. But um, when we see Moses going up on the mountain, we would say, well, he's interacting with and knowing and seeing the second person of the Godhead first and foremost, because even Jesus says to the Pharisees in that uh, very scandalous passage in John 5, that no man can see the Father but Moses saw God. And so Jesus is implying to the Pharisees that Moses talked to him, to Jesus, you see. And that's p- partly why they're so mad at him and they want to stone him and why Jesus keeps saying in the Gospel of John, but I am, before Abraham was, I am. I, I am the I am of Exodus 3, right? All of which are very uh, powerful statements of Christ's divinity. But they're also statements that suggest that he was the uh, angel right, uh, of the Lord in many of those Old Testament passages, like the Theophanies that appear to Abraham and to uh, Hagar in Genesis 16 and to Joshua and uh, 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 Joshua 5 and Judges 13, the parents of Manoah, and then all the way up into even historical books with the word or the voice that, that appears and speaks uh, to Elijah. 
uh, and then all the way up into Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10. So these appearances, these manifestations can't be the essence of God. Uh, nobody would believe or say that the essence of God can manifest in time and space. But we do know that a divine person can manifest, right? Now, we, we believe that the divine persons possess the divine nature, uh, but it's not the essence of God proper that's manifesting. It's the second person of Godhead, and he manifests via his energies or operations. That's our view, and that's how we reconcile all those texts. And we believe that in many cases in the New Testament, in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, I think it's chapter 2, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the inner Gaia of the Spirit, the operations of the Spirit. He talks about Christ's power who worketh in me mightily, I, uh, this, which sometimes he uses the word dunamis and sometimes it's the word energy, but it's the same capturing the same idea that it's the participatory power of God that works in me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me, which is fully divine, but it's not identical to the essence of God. Uh, and so in that way, we have this, this way to have a real distinction without division or composition. And that allows for, again, the, the theophanies, it's partly how we do our Trinitarian theology, where we have uh, the fullness of the divine nature present in each person of the Trinity without dividing or composing it in the same way. God is fully present in every one of his energies or operations or attributes without it compromising his unity or his simplicity. So it's a both and rather than an either or. And this will be a feature that's very important in Orthodox theology, whether it's Trinitarian theology or Christology, the, um, the both and. Uh, and the reality of distinctions without composition, tension, or division. So that for us is kind of our paramatic presuppositions and starting points for how we do this theology. And then beyond the theophanies, beyond the fact that it appears that the, the Moses when interacting directly with the, the second person of the Godhead and the, the, the energies of the powers of God and not the essence of God is also manifest in the fact that God says to Moses, I will show you my goodness, right? But you can't see me directly or else it would kill you. So we have one attribute or, or, or energy or operation manifesting and not the wholeness of God, right? And that is still to not grant that God has parts, right? We're not saying that God has parts because he can manifest one of his uh, operations or energies uh, or it can manifest in one specific theophany, right? Any more than the theophanies mean that God has parts, right? He's not bound by or, or um, constricted by the, the limitations and laws of creation because he himself imposed those laws and limitations in the created order. So in that regard, uh, in the, when we get to the New Testament and we see the many places where, for example, in Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured and the divine light radiates from him, this becomes a kind of a historic text between East and West uh, debating like what exactly is that light that's manifested. Now we know that Paul says to Timothy in first Timothy six, that uh, God dwells in unapproachable light, right? And, and God alone possesses immortality. God alone possesses this, this glory, right? That Jesus identifies in John 17 as what he possessed with the father before the foundation of the world. And nobody I know believes that that's created. Uh, and so for us, it's, the uncreated light, right? The uncreated light of Matthew 17 is the same as the glory of John 17. And it's the same as the, um, the last chapter to, uh, for Paul to Timothy, first Timothy six, where he talks about God possessing these powers and these operations and these energies. So 
Um, that in, in, in short is where we're, we're getting these ideas and, and you can look at other passages like where Isaiah talks about the, the spirit of fear, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge resting upon the Messiah. I think it's nine or 11 of Isaiah. And that's a famous messianic passage about these, the seven spirits of God. Right. And then when you look in the apocalypse, you have mention of the seven spirits of God. Well, what is that? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit is a single person. He doesn't have, there's not seven Holy Spirits, right? But those are another example that, for example, St. Gregory Palamas will argue in his debate with the Barleyamite. He'll bring up these passages and say, what do you think these seven spirits of God are if they're not energies or operations that are obviously not creatures, right? I mean, the wisdom of God, the spirit of God, the knowledge of God is not created, uh, but they're also not identical to the divine essence because if they were, then we would have what's known as the modal collapse problem. And this is a problem for um, any strict proponent of divine simplicity that typically they'll do their doctrine of what God's essence is kind of apart from Trinitarian theology or apart from biblical revelational theology or philosophy and come up with these sort of presuppositions of what, what simplicity must mean, has to mean. And for example, it can't have any real distinctions in it. Well, for us, that would suggest modalism. And in fact, you see those very arguments being made by Eunomius. And that's why the Cappadocians become so important for us is that Cap the Cappadocians really take Eunomius to task, both in St. Gregory of Nyssa's against Eunomius and St. Basil's very <laughs> shorter, much more concise against Eunomius book. Because Basil, uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa's is like 800 pages and Basil's is like uh, 150, 200. But they take them to task for the mistaken ideas of, of what God's simplicity is uh, and not allowing for this reality between both uh, person and nature, uh, which allows us to have a real trinity, and the distinction between uh, nature and the operation of the, uh, nature or the essence center distinction. So for us, those are all really crucial. We think they're grounded in the Old and the New Testament in Paul. And the, really the church fathers are just kind of following in the biblical tradition they're not doing anything new the only thing that's new you could say in a sense is that what you get with cappadocians and especially up into maximus and the christological debates which will rely heavily on the essence energy distinction for us is the metaphysics right so the bible is not a metaphysical textbook it does talk about different metaphysical ideas and philosophical ideas in certain places um you know paul interacts in Acts 17 with the philosophers on mars hill but really, uh, the Bible isn't telling the mechanics of how. And when you get to the 5th, 6th, 7th century councils and debates, they're doing a lot more metaphysical explanations of how. How is Christ's humanity participating in his divine energy? How are we participating in Christ's uncreated energy? How is the Eucharist transformed into the uncreated energy uh, well it's it's the body blood soul and uncreated uh, power uh, we would say following saint cyril so the, they they're not doing unbiblical stuff they're just trying to explain the metaphysics of it and that's where i think some people get tripped up as they think that well you guys are doing a bunch of philosophy and you know uh, platonism or something like that but really the, the 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 irony of that is that the essence energy distinction if you read somebody like dr david bradshaw's excellent book aristotle east and west it's actually being used by the church fathers to refute platonism right because eunomius um uh, nestorius arius even the monophysites they actually have a doctrine of simplicity and the assumptions of simplicity that are causing so many of the problems in their trinitarian 
and Christological views. And that's why we, up when you get up into the period of Byzantium, definitively reject all forms of Platonism. Uh, so you get the rejection by the Synodicon and the Seventh Council of any kind of Platonic philosophy, any kind of academy. Uh, and, and I'm just saying that because a lot of times people say, well, you're, what you're talking about here is just Platonism, but actually it's a direct refutation of the assumptions of Platonism. I had no idea about the uh, like the direct rejection of Platonism uh, in, in Byzantium. That's really interesting. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. I certainly learned If you something. read the, um, this excellent book by Father John Meyendorf, he wrote a book called Byzantine Theology. Someone um, actually he, just sent that to me in the mail. Oh, cool. Yeah, he talks about uh, there's multiple places, especially I think it's the chapter on monks and humanists where he goes into the history of how at the Seventh Council, where the Orthodox Church was really defining uh, its doctrine of icons, um, the the icono uh, class were Platonists. They were actually heavily influenced by Platonic philosophy, and so they were on a crusade against icons because of Platonic assumptions. And so when the Seventh Council confirmed the belief in icons, they wrote up this document called what's called the Synodicon of Orthodoxy. And in the Orthodox Church, it's read, uh, maybe not in every single parish, but at least in the churches where the bishops are present, it's read. Uh, in the uh, in, Most of the bishops will read it, if they're traditional at least. Uh, some of the liberal ones don't read it. But um, it actually lists a lot of these condemnations of the Platonists, of Platonism, of um, John Italos, who is a famous Byzantine guy who wanted to resurrect Platonism. And Meyendorf is correct to say that really the Byzantine condemnations of uh, in the Synodicon represent the victory of Hebrew theology over Hellenism. And I think he's correct. That's really interesting because I think as, you know, in the tradition I grew up in, which was not very historical at all, there's this common, I think, misconception of, you know, as we go through church history, it just becomes this kind of metaphysical, yep. philosophical thing that goes on. And I think you described well that what they're seeking to do, they're, they're not trying to do something new, but they're trying to, you know, give greater clarity to these orthodox doctrines here. Like we, the how. we all believe, the how. yeah, this thing about Christ, but but how can we say that? How like how can we define that? Often in times in light of heresies that are propping up exactly. that they need to kind of defend against. And I think it's really interesting how the essence energies distinction has come up here because I had actually, well, in real time, people will be watching this later, but tomorrow I have a video premiering with Dr. David Bradshaw. And I went into that just not very familiar. I knew it was something I, I should form an opinion on. I knew it was something that divided the East and the West, but it's not something that really has interfaced in my theological development much. And so I just went into it and you know, I had done a little reading on it, but I was fascinated by all the connections he made. One of them, glorification, which you kind of brought up here a bit. But I guess to go all the way back, so the reason that theosis is possible without just becoming God is this idea that there is this meaningful distinction between the essence and energies of God. Without that, it would be saying perhaps you're either becoming God or I think that the Protestant move... Um, is often placing that, and there's a, 
a dispute between Calvin and Osiander that shows up in the Institutes about between being united to Christ via his divinity and via his humanity, Calvin preferring his humanity. So I, I guess that's the direction you have on the Protestant side of saying, hey, this idea of being united to Christ, it's through the incarnation, through his humanity, which you're not denying, but there's something more there. I'm not sure that's the greatest summary. Is there anything you want to speak into there? No, about actually, that, that's, that is precisely in the direction that the fathers take this dispute. So, for example, for us, the the Trinity, for the most part, is pretty much solidified by Constantinople I. So after the Cappadocians, there's not a whole lot of Trinitarian debates until you get to the Middle Ages for the East when uh, the Blackerne Council is, the, the Palamite Councils are called in contrast to the Roman Catholic Councils of Lyons in 1274 in Florence. So uh, for us, the, the Trinity itself is really not debated a whole lot because the, the debate shifts immediately to Christology. And so uh, I bring this up because at Ephesus, which immediately follows um, Constantinople one, the rejection of Nestorianism, it, it relates to uh, Christology, right? In terms of the, the Eucharist. And this is a very important argument that St. Cyril will use against Nestorius, which is to say, Nestorius, we all believe that we're offering the unbloody sacrifice in the liturgy. And if you agree with us, Nestorius, that we're doing that, then it can't be the body and blood of just some guy. Right. It can't just be because if you don't know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, but Nestorius thought that what happened in the incarnation was that there was just this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who was kind of in a special, unique way joined to the Logos, the second person of the Godhead. So he had a dual subject Christology. And that's really what Cyril is rejecting, is that we can't have this dual subject. We have to have a single subject in Christ, namely the second person of the Godhead. So his his personhood is divine. And his humanhood is is fully human, but it's not a human person. Again, recalling the importance for the nature person distinction for us. So this is the whole reason why uh, Cyril stresses Theotokos, that Mary is the mother of God, by which he means that the person that she gave birth to, the person that came forth from her is divine, because that person is the second person of the Godhead. And so there's no human personhood, there's no created hypostasis in Christ proper. Uh, his he is fully human and he's fully divine but the personhood itself is the second person of godhead and, and can only be the logos and thus the question arises well then what happens to the humanity that he assumes and by extension what happens in the eucharistic offering when we partake of that eucharist and cyril's answer becomes the definitive paradigmatic answer for the rest of the church from this point on which is that Jesus is communicating to his human nature. The, the Logos is communicating to his human nature all of the powers of his immortal glory and divinity, right? Not the essence of God, but the energies that he possesses as God. He's communicating to and deifying his humanity. And the deification of that humanity becomes, through the uncreated energies, the means by which we in the Eucharist participate in Christ's humanity. So you're absolutely right that. If we did want to find the bridge, we could look at how we do participate uh, in the divinity of Christ, or excuse me, in the humanity of Christ. But by participating in the humanity of Christ, what we are partaking of is a deified flesh, a deified humanity. And so deification becomes just as important for Christology and what Jesus is doing to his human nature to raise it above the power of death and even the blameless passions, St. Cyril says in the two letters to Sixth Census. He says that we are partaking of that same resurrection power. 
And so that is the meaning by of, of Christ, uh, when Paul talks about the power of the resurrected Christ at work in him, that energy. Uh, we're saying that's all the same thing. So the model of, of, of incarnation becomes the paradigmatic model for the Eucharist, right? So the same way that Christ deifies his humanity, that's that identical same deified flesh that we are partaking of in the Eucharist. And thereby, you know, Cyril believes, in the, if you read the anathemas of Ephesus, that he's refuted uh, Nestorius. He says that you, you've been refuted here, and Cyril actually makes this argument uh, by appealing to the essence energy distinction, that there's a distinction between not between what we participate in, God's actions towards us, and what he is in himself, his very uh, inner essence and being, which we cannot know or participate in. So when you get that argument at Ephesus, this conditions then the Eucharistic view that we have, and it conditions the view of the church. So we believe that the church as a body is also the very body of the God-man. So it becomes a theandric institution. It's not a social institution. It's not a gathering of just random believers. It's not a... Um, it's not the invisible church doctrine of Calvin. It's a visible body that really possesses in a visible sense all the powers and means that Jesus himself had walking around in a visible, visible physical body. And hence for us, we would read rather than Paul's epistles, you know, like in the Calvinist way, like, well, he's really writing to the invisible number of the elect, even though it's written to a visible church. We would say that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, you are God's hands, feet, etc., eyes, that he's literally saying the visible collection of baptized people there is who he's talking about, not the invisible church. So the, for us, we don't make that. We would say that's a Nestorian view of, of ecclesiology. And then um, by extension to this relates to our icon doctrine, because the icons are have the ability to image the uh, hypostasis and the nature assumed by the hypostasis, just as words can pick out words are kind of iconographic and that's why we call icon painters writers right because they're doing no they're, they're not doing anything different than a person who writes right but they're just doing it with a picture rather than uh than a word so for us the essence energy distinction literally explains everything right and and the the trinitarian distinctions that we have that you mentioned that they're kind of the metaphysical hows of this is of how this is possible Nature, person, will, energy in the Trinity will directly explain and determine nature, person, will, and energy in terms of Christology, which explains how we view nature, person, will, and energy in anthropology, and nature, person, will, energy in terms of the church, in terms of the Eucharist, and even in terms of the eschaton. That's really interesting, and something I find not to use the word interesting again, but interesting here is that, you know, it, I feel like it's Protestants that are known for systematic theology. I could look on my shelf and I've got several, but the inner coherence uh, is something that I really appreciate in orthodoxy. And generally that we see in the fathers in general, like, hey, we want to tie everything back to these principles and they're going to inform other things. It really seems to be systematic in the proper use of that word, even though that's and maybe I'm wrong here, but it's not a word I often see being associated with orthodoxy. That's a great question uh, and point. I, I mean, when we get to the early phases of the patristic period, um, era, uh, the, the closest thing in the first several centuries to a systematic theology would be like uh, St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies. 
even though it's not really a systematic theology, it's the first kind of systematic presentation of the dogmas and why we don't believe Gnosticism and what, what we do think, exposition of the creed, this kind of stuff. Then maybe the next closest thing would be the really excellent um, uh, catechetical lectures of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. So even though they're catechetical lectures, they actually do follow the creed, right? So he goes through each, each line of the creed and gives a catechetical uh, exegesis. And by the way, in all of these famous fathers, you will consistently find the essence, energy, distinction, and, and you know all of the, the points that we believe still. Uh, we don't think we're out of accord at all with any of those church fathers. Doesn't mean we accept every opinion of every individual church father. Nobody does. There's nobody who believes that, you know, any specific church father got everything right. We, we don't think that. But on the whole, when they're, you know, teaching the basics of the creed and this kind of stuff, we don't think that they erred. Um, mostly, for the most part. 99% of the time, they don't make mistakes. But um, it's not until we get up until about, uh, I would say, really, the first systematic theology of St. John Damascus is on the Orthodox faith. And... Uh, that shows us that even though it's not typical for Orthodox theology to, to do that, it, there's nothing wrong with it. And so there are some Byzantine theologians who were very academic and scholarly who uh, kind of did systematic presentations. St. Photius was a, kind of the philosopher academic of the whole Byzantine empire of his day. Um, and, and there is a very systematic kind of presentation, even in St. Gregory Palamas, the great mystic, um, and even St. Simeon, the New Theologian, his writings are kind of a systematic presentation. But yeah, I would say that uh, it's not totally unheard of, but even still today, I think if you look at St. John Damascus's On the Orthodox Faith, what you'll notice is that he begins the work with the Trinity. The very first paragraph is that we all of our theology starts with the Trinity. We don't start with, you know, if you read uh, Thomas's Summa Contra Gentiles, you've got 300 pages of volume one that's nothing about the trinity it's just all about what the essence of god is the the one the, the first cause the unmoved mover the supreme essence of the one etc so it's a very different approach and even in thomas's book uh, de veritate he mentions his dis difference with uh saint uh, saint john damascus and he takes issue with the essence energy distinction and says i, I can't accept this this is a, a, a an area that we have to part ways on and he thinks that John Damascus was wrong on that point. So that, to me, is an admission that we know John Damascus is teaching the essence energy distinction because Aquinas is rejecting the arguments that he makes for it. So um, that being the case, I would say that we have a different ordo theologia, a different order of theology. So, and uh, Meindorf makes that point in the Byzantine theology book, but uh, the order of theology for us, as we said, will begin with Trinity. And then you'll notice what John Damascus does is that he takes all these principles of nature, person, will, and energy in view of his Trinitarian theology. And then by book three, it's four books. Book one is Trinity. And then by book three is where he really gets into Christology. He will apply all those same arguments and principles of nature, person, will, and energy in the Trinity to Christology. Because obviously it's going to be reflexive because it's the second person of the Godhead who's becoming incarnate, entering into the mode of being incarnate, right? So obviously there's going to be a, a direct reflexivity there. And so he will, he will argue. And then I actually St. Gregory Palamas uh, later argues uh, against uh, Akindinos and against the Barlamites that really, if you wanted to understand the essence center distinction, the best approach or way is in Christology, because it's really seen much more clearly in Christology and the relationship between Christ and his human nature than it is in terms of just sitting back and trying to understand how the Trinity relates to creation. Now there's nothing wrong with sitting back and trying to 
consider how the Trinity relates to creation. But even the way that the Trinity relates to creation is only known by us by virtue of the incarnation. And this is because for Orthodox theology, the created world is actually created with the presupposition of incarnation. And this is a difference that we have with kind of Thomistic natural theology. We don't think that the incarnation was like a plan B, uh, but rather, as Paul says, the whole created order was made through the logos. And so it's going to bear the stamp of the logos. And in fact, the St. Maximus argues, it's going to bear the stamp of the Trinity itself. And this is why St. Gregory, Apollos, and St. Maximus argue that we will see little trinities or trinity everywhere in creation, including man himself as a little trinity, Gregory says in the 150 chapters, because the very creation of the world is triadic and it bears that stamp. And so that is an important point of distinction between um, where actually we might find more ground with Calvinists or Protestants because uh, some Protestants, because we don't accept the, the Thomistic natural theology doctrine which doesn't see creation as directly being a revelation of the Logos. That's really interesting. And I think one insightful thing that you brought up there is the amount we can learn about someone's theological presuppositions, and this isn't foolproof, but that we can learn from someone's theological presuppositions from just the way that the table of contents of their theological works. For instance, uh, Wayne Grudem, who's like famous for his systematic theology that's been used in, you know, evangelical seminaries for quite a while now. I think he just came out with a second edition, actually. The first thing he talks about in, I'd say typical, maybe not uh, historically typical, but in evangelical fashion is it's bibliology. That is, you know, chapter one of Grudem's systematic theology. And then, you know, looking at Aquinas, how he sets up his with uh, natural theology, the essence of God, then John of Damascus, starting with the Trinity. Uh, there's there's a lot to be learned there that I think people might overlook when they are comparing texts. Just look at how they're laid out. Again, not foolproof. Some people might just lay their work out poorly, but I think good theologians are making a point in what they're doing there. Yeah, I would agree that, so the Protestants are correct in, uh, in my, my view, well, maybe not Wayne Grudem per se, but um, I would give uh, uh credit to Calvin and to a lot of the, the Calvinists that I was studied under like Bonson and Van Til and these guys, they at least understood that um, you couldn't really make sense of the created order apart from the Trinity. If the Trinity is who creates the created order, right? So it's odd to think that um, we're going to do a bunch of what uh, John Paul II calls in Fides et Ratio autonomous reasoning. And then after we do a bunch of autonomous reasoning, then we'll then stack on top of that the supernatural doctrines of Trinity, Incarnation, Virgin Birth. I mean, just take somebody like St. Maximus, who's very important to both the East and the West. You know, Maximus says the created order is one of the Logos' embodiments. And he says that it's almost like the whole created order is a garment that is worn by the Logos. Now, he's not identifying the Incarnation with Jesus' presence or the Logos' presence in all creation in the same way. There's a different way in which he's present in his humanity than he is in all creation. But he does draw this parallel to talk about the, the three embodiments of the Logos. And from Maximus's metaphysic and epistemology, what that means is that fundamentally the created order cannot be understood apart from the Logos. It's If you want to know the meaning of the created order, it's Jesus. And that's a really radical statement in terms of theology, especially 
in contrast to um, to Aquinas. And what that shows is that from the outset, uh, if we were just looking at somebody like St. Maximus, I mean, that's, that's so different from Aquinas. I mean, it's just really night and day from Aquinas. And that's a better bridge. I saw more commonality when I was a Calvinist and a Vantillian with St. Maximus than I did with Aquinas. And I was really interested in both, right? I was really interested in, in studying Aquinas for many years and trying to understand that system as best I could. And and then also getting into Maximus and, and just realizing that there really is a difference of approach here because the 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 order of theology that we have might in this regard not in every point but in this regard be closer to the way that a bonson or a vantillian type of person would understand revelation so even bonson and vantill for example believe in natural revelation uh now we don't believe in total depravity but um the the doctrine of natural revelation that they have is closer to what you get in for example uh, father dimitrius Daniloi, the orthodox famous orthodox theologian of the 20th century who in the very beginning of his orthodox dogmatics says that we can't accept thomistic natural theology and he says if you want a better phraseology it would be natural revelation because you know maximus doesn't teach doesn't teach natural theology uh and therefore even though so, so the, there is some common ground there, but where we disagree in terms of with the Protestant over the ordo theology, or ordo theology, where we both. So, in other words, Rome is over here saying we want to, we're going to start with natural theology in the order of how we do theology. Protestants and Orthodox are agreed that we got to start with Revelation. That's what that's what I, the way I phrase it. Um, and then at least Calvinists would, unless you're like R.C. Sproul, right, who believes in natural theology. But if you're a Bonsinian, Vantillian uh, Calvinist, you would agree with the Orthodox person that we want to start our Ordo Theologiae with Revelation. The only now where we get into differences is that we don't want to start our Revelational Ordo Theologiae with Soteriology. We start with Trinity and Christology, and for us, Trinity and Christology will determine how we view soteriology whereas for typical westminster confession type it's the soteriology will come first and then down the road we'll do christology or trinitarian theology however we want to do that later yeah i think that's insightful and i think there there's maybe a bit of a gap there between calvin and his later heirs Um, because in fairness to calvin you know book two you've got uh got the knowledge of god as uh trinity and then book three you've got as like his work in salvation but I, I think that does segue well to this idea of salvation and i think it was it was really helpful to compare eastern and western approaches there i it's not necessarily something i anticipated for this but i think it's gonna be really insightful for people and helpful well there is uh, some ahead. debate too i reckon i was just trying to simplify i know that there's actually debate over calvin so in terms of uh, reformed epistemology, there will be some people who will claim Calvin as a proponent of a kind of natural theology. So, for example, if you read Arvin Voss, he has a book kind of trying to show uh, common ground between Calvin and Aquinas. And then you've got other people, um, maybe John Frame or Bonson or Van Til, who will argue that that's not the case, that really Calvin is not um, a proponent of natural theology. Uh, so, I, I, I'm just that's an inter reformed debate, which uh, I, I'm a, I, I grant your point. I was just trying to kind of simplify. Yeah, no, and I wasn't even trying to uh, refute that. I was just, yeah, on natural theology, it's complicated with his uh, talk of the census divinitatis and how that compares right. to Aquinas. Conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, I think there is a general trend of uh, 
almost like a, a Protestant scholasticism coming out of Calvinism later that uh, Calvin might not have. But again, a conversation for another day. But as far as um, I do want to get back to this idea of theosis a bit here, because and I think this is actually going to play in a bit as far as the differences between maybe a Protestant approach and an Orthodox approach, uh, maybe around the idea of imputation. We'll see where this goes. But uh, I, I think as a Protestant looking on to Orthodox dialogue around theosis, it might seem, and maybe this even would be uh, something maybe like less catechized Orthodox might think, or maybe it's accurate, but is I want to talk theosis as kind of process, destination. How does that work? So is this like, hey, theosis is a thing for the monks on Athos, but the rest of us we can't hope for. What I heard you saying earlier is it sounded more like theosis is, it's what it puts in context what Protestants would refer to as like the ordo salutis, like justification, sanctification. Um, but how could you flesh that out a bit? So is it just for the spiritually elite or is this really the underpinning of any meaningful talk of salvation? Um, it's the underpinning of any meaningful talk. Now there have been periods in church history where it did turn into a thing that was seen as only a bunch of kind of spiritual elites on Mount Athos. And in fact, uh, St. Simeon, the famous, uh, the, who's known as the new theologian, he was actually kicked out of his monastery for pointing out that this was for every Christian, <laughs> right? Uh, he, he was dealing with a kind of um, resurgence of what in his day was called an, a, a new form of Messalianism, which was an early church, kind of weird charismatic heresy that thought that only a select special elite could actually physically see God. Um, and that was eventually rejected in the early church as heretical. And then it, it kind of popped up again um, in his day, in his monastic circles, and and he was a champion for pointing out that, you know, the purpose of the um, the initiation rituals of Christianity, baptism and, and uh, chrismation or holy unction are really intended to give everybody access to the same power. That's the whole purpose of it. It would really undercut the purpose of the sacraments if that wasn't the case. I mean, and if we think about the way John, for, for our exegesis, for example, of John's epistles, when he says, you have an unction from the Holy One, and there, thereby you know all things. Now, he doesn't literally mean you're omniscient, but he's saying that you as an individual um, orth, Orthodox Christian have access to the exact same power and, and process, so to speak, as the monk on Athos. Um, the only difference is just that they have taken a certain approach to life and vows that will allow them right, to be more you know, they're trying to model themselves on John the Baptist, right? Every ascetic is kind of modeling themselves on John the Baptist. So, but, but in terms of what is the potentiality, there's no difference, right? And this is something that's, again, often misunderstood. Um, so, and one real quick too, this is also a very important distinction between Roman Catholic monasticism and Orthodox, which is that in the Roman Catholic tradition, you will find, especially in the second millennium, a lot of different manifestations of, mystical experiences and union with God and, and, uh, dark night of the soul. And, um, you know, these, these very sort of even quasi sexual outlandish approaches with somebody like, uh, St. Catherine or, or, uh, uh, Teresa Avila, uh, it gets very bizarre in a lot of the accounts, accounts of the mystical experiences. And you don't find like stigmata as another example, you don't find that in the Orthodox tradition of union with Christ, because we believe pretty strongly that the palamite hesychast union is the same for all the saints. So we don't think that there's any variation in 
like one saint will have the vision. I'm not saying that everybody has a, the same vision, but I'm saying that the process of deification, we believe, is the same. Whether it's Paul or whether it's Moses or whether it's Palamas or whether it's Gregory Nazianzus or whether it's somebody today, it's the exact same process and experience. And so there's none of the wild stories, so to speak, that you do find in a lot of the, especially the Roman Catholic circles of nuns. Um, uh, and I'm not trying to be unfair. I just think that that's, that, that's how they present their mystical experiences. Uh, most famously in the last century, Faustina Kowalska, who's a famous Roman Catholic saint, I mean, she's most well known for these really wild stories of, you know, crazy things happening. But so you don't find that orthodoxy because we think that the experience of union with God is identical across all the saints across time. And so there, if that's the case, we would expect the same accounts and the same experiences. And this is something that in orthodoxy is supposed to be, again, literally available to everyone. Right. And this is something that, again, we would if you read St. Uh, Simeon, the New Theologian, it would sound like a Protestant at times because he's stressing that the individual Christian has direct access to knowledge of God. And you might think that that's impossible in a church with priests and hierarchy. But orthodoxy has never seen a an either or between having an authoritative hierarchy and the individual laity and people having a direct experience of God. We think those things work together. And that's something that I found very unique because when I was between Protestant and Catholic, I would keep going back and forth between, well, you know, I do find evidence in the Bible that like I, as an individual believer should have direct access to this power, to this experience of God. And in, in the Roman Catholic system, even though there's kind of verbal credence given to that, there's a very kind of a very strict kind of strata of what it is to be the body of Christ, even so much that even so that in the in the early Middle Ages, they developed a novel distinction between the um, the juridical body and the sacramental body. And they would kind of place it on a weird tier. You can read uh, the two bodies of the king and you can read um, Church Papacy Schism by Sherard, where he where he traces this out. But the juridical body of like the cardinals and the prelates is like definitely on a higher metaphysical status than the the body of the laity and the mystical uh the mis the mystical body so to speak and they literally flesh this out as a scholastic distinction in the early middle ages which is just completely foreign to to orthodoxy so for us there's no difference in terms of what you have access to as a monastic or as a laity that's really interesting and i i definitely can attest to you know understanding that attention of as a protestant looking at uh, Catholicism, like there's, there's certain nice things about, uh, institutions and, you know, they're, they're able to do certain nice things in that stratification, but it can seem very foreign. And then it's interesting how you've kind of found something that plays to both of those ideas in orthodoxy, not saying that, um, th that's all there was to it, that, you know, it was this nice middle ground, ergo become orthodox. Uh, right. But it is interesting that, that kind of situates itself there. As we begin to wrap up, I'd like to ask, you know, there's if, well, first of all, thanks to everyone that's, that's with us this far. You have, you know, there's been a lot to think about. Maybe people had to pause as they go to think through some of these concepts. It's a lot. And so I appreciate everyone who's uh, been keeping up. At this point, I would like to ask, and maybe this is uh, the inner Protestant in me that, you know, grew up on enough messages that ended in application to ask a question like this. But, you know, what... What are the the practical 
outpourings of this doctrine. I think what we believe about salvation is going to determine a lot about our Christian life. And a common um, kind of critique of Protestantism is if you have this kind of imputed righteousness or this cheap grace, it's going to turn into a certain way of living the Christian life. If, you know, it's this once saved, always saved. We don't have to get into all of whether those are caricatures or not. But the the main idea of, you know, your soteriology is going to determine how you live out the Christian faith. You already mentioned that there's a bit of an overlap here with the sacraments, how that kind of democratizes, if you will, this idea that, you know, hey, we're all receiving the same uh, deification theosis. But what, how does this shape the orthodox life of faith? It's definitely a, uh, a much more serious calling, and I don't mean that against the individual Protestants as if they're not all serious. Uh, I mean, I know when I was a Protestant, I was very serious about it. But what I'm getting at is that the um, the expectations are a lot more um, serious, as the best way I could put it. For example, if a person becomes Orthodox, uh, catechesis is usually one to three years. Um, if you want to join a Protestant church, you can join that day, right? Um, typically, uh, and and even a little, even more so than Roman Catholic uh, RCIA, like that's usually three to six months, and then you can be received into the Roman Catholic Church. And there's always exceptions. I mean, the bishops and the priests can make uh, you know decisions on the basis of, of economy and, and make exceptions. But the first thing I would say is that it's um, it's a more serious calling. Number one, because we even with the problems of liberalism in the Orthodox world, as well as in the Roman Catholic and Protestant world, liberalism is a problem across any group or denomination or, or church or whatever. Even with the problems of liberalism, there's still a pretty serious application of coming to the Eucharist. So, for example, in the Orthodox church, it's still pretty normative that you're going to go to confession before receiving the Eucharist. And that's so that we prepare ourselves to be in a, a, the proper state because we take very serious, you know, Paul's statement in Corinthians that if you don't, if you un, eat and drink unworthily, you can bring about death and damnation, right? So we, we take the covenant curses, so to speak, of the Eucharistic meal very serious, even in the liberal versions of Orthodoxy. And so that's uh, uh, one element that comes to mind just off the top of my head as to um, what is different in terms of the lifestyle um, the, the daily prayer rule and, and keeping to a regimen of daily prayer is a lot more serious and a lot is stressed a lot more in orthodoxy. Um, <clears throat> things like prayer, excuse me, not just prayer, but things like fasting and alms is stressed a lot more, uh, even than in the Roman Catholic world. Uh, when I was in the Roman Catholic world, that might be mentioned here and there, but I've definitely noticed that the, the emphasis on, um, giving to the poor is, is a lot heavier in, in the Orthodox world, which is a good thing. I actually think that's a really good thing. And, um, I, I, I would, uh, I would also say, um, viewing marriage as a sacrament is a lot. It, it will turn marriage into an ascetic task where you're really having to learn your own sins, uh, to, fix your own character. And so those are just some examples that, you know, it's me, somebody being married and, and, and recently married and then kind of experiencing this stuff. Those things come to mind, which is very different when I was, I mean, I wasn't married as a Protestant, but you know, I was a single guy and I was dating girls as a Protestant and so forth. So these are just ideas that come to mind as to how it's different. 
Um, and then I really do think that you will you will tend to notice uh, a much more heightened uh, awareness of spiritual warfare, uh, which is not to say that nobody in the Protestant world believes in spiritual warfare. I know that they do. But when I was a Calvinist, it wasn't something I thought about a whole lot. Um, but you will tend to notice um, those kinds of things in the realm of orthodoxy, for sure. Those are just some ones that come to mind. Well, thank you for that. I always think it's interesting to see how different things end up connecting to one another. And I think theology just gets a lot more understandable when people can make connections rather than feel like there's all these things existing in silos. And that goes back to the kind of conversation we had about the systematic or integrated nature of theology. But seeing how this plays out in life, I think, is also going to be helpful for people. Well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on today. I thank you for your time. This has been really enjoyable to get to explore this concept of theosis. I'd like to give you the last word. And if you wouldn't mind, you've mentioned lots of resources, but if there's anywhere you'd point people to, if they want to learn more about this, if you could let them know that, then also I'll leave links in the description. But if you want to let people know where they can find you and your work, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, you could go to my website, jaysanalysis.com. You can find me on YouTube, Jay Dyer, uh, and then the other social medias, Twitter and Instagram and all that as well. Um, just a couple decent books is um, most of the time a pretty good introduction is uh, a book by Vladimir Lofsky, which is called Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. That's a really good introduction. If you're more philosophically minded, um, as you mentioned with Dr. Bradshaw, uh, he has a really good book called Aristotle East and West. That's it's not just about Aristotle. It's actually the way Aristotelian categories are conceived of for 2000 years uh, between the East and the West of Christianity. So it's a very important book. Um, also, Lasky has a good book called Image and Likeness of God that I recommend that kind of describes our Christology and anthropology. Um, if you want to know more about deification proper there's a good book by uh, orthodox professor uh georgios Mansaridis called deification of man saint gregory palamas in the orthodox tradition it's a really good short read um highly recommend that and then as an overview as i said earlier the byzantine theology of father meindorf is good and then if, if you want to go into the, the master himself you can get the triads of saint gregory palamas and then an Orthodox study Bible, too. The, the notes are really good in the Orthodox study Bible for those who are interested in our exegesis of the text. Awesome. Thank you so much. I love the number of sticky notes in there as well. It looks like quite the system you've got going. Uh, but I don't I actually say, read the books, though. That's the joke. Right? I just put the sticky yeah. notes in there. It looks, it looks like I read it. but <laughs> Well, it's kind of like the obligation of having the anti-Nicene fathers and somewhere in the background of any like good theology channel. That My, my channel is lacking because of that. <laughs> I, yep. Got well, you have to get a copy and just take it. Or, or just print out like a do, do like a screen print of just a 2D. Just and, the covers. And, and but just pin it up on the wall <laughs> the screen there's print. an idea there you know i i think it would give me at least 10 percent more credibility talking <laughs> on any given subject i don't have to read them but uh <laughs> but anyway uh, this I'm has sorry. been a lot of fun thank you and thanks to everyone watching i don't take your time lightly i really appreciate that i hope you enjoyed the video and as i always do say until next time be on the lookout for more videos and as always go out and love god and love others because truly above all else that will change the world